Welcome to the pod, everyone. A shout out to SGS. Hey, Rusty, why are we uh, partnering with SGS? Uh, uh, some, some, some good people there. Pretty excited about their sports coaching courses and sports courses. Keen to make them industry ready so when people leave, they're able to go and transfer it to any kind of industries, coaching, teaching, being an analyst, business, whatever it might be. So I think, uh, yeah, I think it's pretty exciting times, really. So what's so special about their degree courses that others wouldn't be doing? I think it'll be lots of uh, real good partnerships, uh, opportunities for people to, to get into different contexts and learn and practice. It'll be feel very applied. People will be stretched and supported and will leave yeah, ready to just go and thrive in the uh, big old world out there. SGS College is the home of Bristol's higher education sports programmes. The programmes are designed to develop unique, innovative and creative sports practitioners ready for industry. Do you want to be a coach or teacher of the future? Start your journey here at SGS College and become more than just a graduate. Visit sgscol.ac.uk to apply now. Cool. Uh, Rusty, uh, live on the pod with Gary Kirsten. Um, from his car, just watch his sixteen-year-old uh, son get out of cricket. Uh, how you doing, mate? You well? Yeah, good that I'm chatting to you. But I could get a little bit emotional around the side of a field as a parent, eh? But I'm, uh, I've walked away, I've calmed down, and I'm, uh, I'm okay with it now. <laughs> what are you like on the side of a pitch? Out of interest? No, I'm very, I'm very cool. I, I, I think for me, like, it's, I think it's a real challenge being a, a parent and a coach together because you. You, you you sometimes forget what hat you need to be wearing, you know, and sometimes I, I put my coaching hat on to my kids and, um, you know, I don't know if that's always a good thing. Um, but then sometimes I put my parenting hat on as a coach and I don't think that's a good thing either. So trying to find the balance is important. But what I try to do is be very standoffish around their performances um, and probably a little bit more stand on around their preparation. Um I don't want to get involved in their performances. I don't want them to perform for me, you know, so they must perform for themselves. Um, so I try to be quite relaxed around the performances, but sometimes I get frustrated like I just have now. <laughs> do you, uh, what do the coaches, how do the coaches react to seeing Gary Kirsten on the side of a cricket pitch? I'm not sure, but I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm literally, I don't go anywhere near the action. And I think sometimes I get uh, accused of being a little bit, um, um, what is the word in, um, distant from everyone else and uh, I'm not that forthcoming and that communicative but I do that purposely I don't want to get involved in friendships with coaches and things like that because I just know where that can go you know <laughs> so I just stay away from the action completely nice yeah it's a good uh, good balancing act it sounds like you're performing <laughs> so look it's it's awesome to have you on we chatted a few weeks back uh, feels like a lifetime ago given <laughs> The current rate of time moving. Um, yeah. What do you want to give a quick kind of, well, in your words, a summary of uh, of Gary Kirsten and what's the stuff that got him to where he is today? Uh, quick, it'll only take thirty seconds. Eh? <laughs> um, no, I think. Listen, I think I'm I'm really privileged to be um, a sports practitioner. You know, we came, I came from a family that loved sport. And um, I came from a rugby and cricket background uh, as a as a South African, and um, I mean I played rag I played um, uh, competitive rugby till I was 26 of years of age, and in the same year, um, 
I ended up going to play for South, cricket for South Africa. In the year that I retired from rugby, I played. I ended up going to. So you wouldn't, you would never get that in these days because I was a, I was a seventy-five kilogram scrum off, um, and you're not say, allowed to. You must have been a scrum off. Yeah, <laughs> and you're not allowed to be a seventy-five kilogram scrum off in the modern game. So I wouldn't have, I wouldn't be playing rugby in this in this era. <laughs> But it's been great. Yeah, I've just I've just enjoyed the the the, the privilege of um, sport being a part of my life. You know, I played it. You know, I've played it recreationally um, as a as a youngster. Then I played it professionally. Now I'm coaching professionally. Um, I've been able to make a good living out of the game of cricket and um, and sport. Um, but I think for me now in my fifties, I I kind of uh, I'm I'm loving the. Um, the connections created through sport, you know, and, and particularly through coaching. It's, it's been a real learning curve for me over the last 10 years. Nice. What would your family say about, uh, about sport? Sorry, say that again, well, uh, Rusty. What would your family, what would your wife say about all this? Cause I guess sports also taking you away from home a lot. Yeah, it's been, it's been an interesting one that, I mean, we met when I was already playing for South Africa um, we've been married 21 years now, and um, I think she's just been uh, like ridiculously supportive. But but I think as well, she's she has all the way along, um, specifically in my coaching career, where we started to have children and, and 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 a family. She's always been very strong on on uh, me maintaining a balance through career and family. You know, so I've made a lot of decisions um, that probably has jeopardized my career a little bit. Um, but but that um, I've been able to create a bit a bit more balance from a family perspective because as you know, Rusty, the you know the coaching world in professional sport it can take you away. It's a twenty four seven operation because you basically are a father figure to a whole lot of people around you every day, um, uh, and sometimes it can just consume your life, you know. And I think uh, she was always very aware of where I was in my relationship with my kids, for example. So to try and find that balance hasn't been easy, but I've tried to do it as best I can. Nice. Father figure, what do you mean by that? So there's a little bit of me. Like sometimes I think I'd love to be a postman because you deliver your letters and you go home and there's no kind of baggage or stuff to consider. Sometimes I'm quite jealous of coaches that don't see perhaps the, the importance of relationships in, in, in sporting environments. And so they can also just kind of, go, well, it's, you know, almost be quite robotic around some of this stuff. What do you mean by that, that you're often a father figure for, for lots of people? Yeah, I agree with you. It's, it's probably more around relationships. So I think, I think for, with some players, you need to be a father figure. With other players, you need to be that best friend that's going to ask you challenging questions. For other players, you need to be like a mentor, like a distant, not necessarily a, a, a fatherly figure, but someone you know, that you can relate to um, that's older than you uh, from a distance. So I think there's, you, you play, you play various roles as a coach. I mean, it's interesting. I had a fantastic chat to Sir David Brailsford the other day, um, who's in the, in the cycling game, as you know. And um, I, I thought that his leadership approach would be in a sport, which is a very physically demanding sport. And is all about very small margins. I would have thought that his approach would have been very scientific, but it's not. It's actually incredibly relational. 
and he believes that the key to the success of Team Enios and and Team and, and the Sky Team was him understanding the individuals and where they needed to be at certain times and what he needed to do with each individual. So I was I was very chuffed with that because I think I think we can't underestimate as coaches the importance of um, of the relations that you have with your players. Someone told me the other day, which I really agree with, you know, um, um, the, play, the coach sees, but the player feels. And uh, we really need to understand what the player is feeling before we can get the best out of them. Yeah, I agree. And maybe with Brailsford, because they improved the aerodynamics of the helmet and people started talking about marginal gains, they perhaps yes. forgot about the other probably even more greater gains of understanding what's best for that person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I think, I think, uh, I think it, it's, it's fascinating because we often think of uh, truly scientific sports, um, physically demanding sports. And we think um, it's all about science there, but it's not, they're still leading teams and they still got to understand human, human dynamics and human behavior. And, Every individual in their team, you can throw as much science as you want to, but he's still got to make decisions under pressure, you know, and, and, and a lot of those decisions are based on a lot of different things rather than, you know, just the physical demands. Nice, yeah. It definitely made me think I need to get a cycling coach on because I'm intrigued by the teamwork of having domestiques and the leader in the team. And um, let's rewind back to your playing career. So... I'm more interested in actually, so clearly you were incredibly successful um, as a player. What stuff helped you then become a coach? So, and, and tell me a bit about that transition. I'm really curious. Was it like uh, you were a player, then you were suddenly a coach or this was a period of time or how did that work? Yeah, I mean, I, I think my, my transition into coaching was not a slam dunk. I, I didn't think that I was necessarily, I didn't have this vision of becoming a top end coach. I really didn't. Um, I just thought it was almost a natural progression for me. Um, and my departure points, there, there were three very important departure points for me as a coach. Number one, I made a very conscious decision that I'm never going to talk about myself as a coach, as a talk about myself as a player in, in my coaching space. I wanted to have a free mind to think and feel um, um, about coaching without my own reference point, if that makes sense. Because I thought that my own reference point was, reference point was incredibly limited. You know, I could, I could only be as good, if, if I was going to use my playing reference to coach, I would have only been as good as my playing reference. But uh, there was so much more to coaching than just that. So that was the number one. Number two was um, um, I, I was thrust into the coaching space with very limited coaching experience. And I thought that was very helpful because it allowed me to, under pressure and in performance, to start with a blank sheet of paper with a whole group of individuals. You know, um, My first main coaching job was with the Indian team. And um, that, so when I transitioned into that, I had no coaching reference points. I only had playing reference points. And I realized then that all I needed to be, do is just be very humble around what I thought was important and not important in the game. Um, and then the third, the third point, I think, as well, uh, Rusty, would, would have been, so what are the things that I could take out of my playing career 
that'll help me in my coaching. And there was only one thing that came to my, there was only one thing that I took across and that was um, resilience. I, I had a career full of resilience where I had probably more failure than success. And I had to, I had to keep getting up when I'd got knocked down, keep getting up when I'd got knocked down. And I thought if I could take that into my coaching, would that be a good example to the players that I was leading? And I think it has been. I, I, like, I don't get overly emotional around success and failure. When we do well, it's cool. We've put in the work, we deserve it. When we do badly, I'm disappointed. It's cool. We'll debrief and we'll work out what went wrong, but we'll get back on the bus and go again, you know. So I think that resilience has been really helpful for me in the transition. Nice. Yeah, I think the thought of someone spoke to me the other week about just doing more neutral reviews of matches, like actually let's look at the facts rather than get caught up in the emotion. <clears throat> in what other ways did you take that that and, and I was excited when you said clearly when you said resilience that I think the mental side of cricket is is absolutely fascinating. I mean, yeah, you're gonna be out. You know, you, you know, your son is experiencing being out this morning. He's yeah. there to bounce back and he's got to do some bowling. Um, he's yeah. gone. So what other ways did you feel like you integrated that into, you know, well, the, the work you did with India, for example? Um, yeah, I think, I think it's an interesting one. I, I think for me, the, the biggest thing was, um, uh, consistency in, um, your processes. You, um, you know, the one, the, the funny thing about cricket is, and especially batting is that you, your success is very sporadic. So if we had to use scoring 50 runs as a measure of success, um, it's not happening very often as a batsman. The best batsman, it's happening 33% of their careers. Um, so I, I think what I've been able to do is to process failure really well. Um, and, and I think by processing failure really well, you give yourself the best chance of then having success. And, and often people don't understand what that is, you know. Um, but because we live in an environment where sport the beauty about sport is that there is no guarantee to winning or losing. And, and isn't it, a, isn't it a, a great thing about sport? I mean, we've, I, I've just watched this morning the Argentinians beat the All Blacks. I mean, who could have who scripted that? That is the beautiful thing about sport, isn't it? So the fact that we don't know whether we're going to win or lose a game, I think brings in great processes about how we journey our lives and how we journey a team. And I think consistency in how we journey is crucial to any team. You have to have consistency in how you, how you put a process together. And that's, that's not mechanis mechanistic. I think that is, I think that this is how we do things and we will do this every day and we'll do this every week, whether it's in our behaviors, whether it's in the way we train and the way we prepare, whether it's how we go onto a field. And that consistency, gives people boundaries and gives them a lot of comfort. When did you arrive at this point? So you're talking about quite a, almost like a meta view of coaching as I would describe it. And actually someone asked me this recently, like when did you start to think like this? Was it like straight away? Was it, you know, there was a couple of moments in your coaching career where you thought, actually it's, it's, it's not how I thought it was, or this is working. Oh. 
Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I mean, the one thing you'll see from any two, two great uh, sportsmen, um, the one consistency you see from any of them, um, and I've met a lot across different sports, is that they commit to their training, you know, they commit to their preparation. That's a non-negotiable. If you're going to be a high-level professional sportsman, the one non-negotiable is your commitment to your preparation. So I think that's quite an easy place to be. I mean, I, I was like, I mean, for me, whether right or wrong, um, I would not have gone through one week in 15 years where I didn't hit a thousand balls in the week. That's a consistency. That's a non-negotiable. <laughs> and I think teams need non-negotiables. You know, um, I was chatting to Justin Langer the other day, the Australian career coach, and he is very strong on, there's certain things that are absolutely non-negotiable under my watch. Um, and we will do that. We'll do that every week. It's not, it's never not going to go away. It's always, there. I just want to let you know that that's what's going to happen. And I think people take comfort in that, in that barrier, in that, not barrier, in that boundary um, that is being created. What were your habits when you were kind of training as a, as a player? Was it, because the other thing I'm intrigued by with cricket is, and Fletch, who I work with, he, he knows more about cricket. He'll say, oh, you know, the coach might say to him, oh, Ollie did really well this morning. You know, he wasn't out for two hours. And Fletcher's thinking, well, he probably needs to be out. You know, he probably needs to get some feedback. So what I see in lots mm. of cricket coaching is the technical stuff, lots of, you know, repetition, but without considering the kind of the when and the why. So, you know, actually, I need to use this shot here. I need to use this shot here. So back to when you were you know, a young lad training, what, what, were, your, what were the habits, what were the non-negotiables for you? Um, I think probably my strongest non-negotiable is, is um, a SWOT analysis of myself. I needed to know what my strengths and weaknesses were. And I need to, uh, you know, the definition of mental toughness for me was sticking to my game plan. <laughs> that doesn't mean you can't be adventurous around your game plan. People often get that wrong. Um, you can you can bring new things into a game plan, but you have to. If someone came and watched me play cricket, they would see the same thing every 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 time they came to watch me bat. They would see the same thing. That my game plans were always the same. I'd never change. I was, if someone bowled me a good ball outside off stump, I'd leave it. <laughs> <laughs> you, they wouldn't one day see me leave it, and the next day see me try to take it on. They'd always see me do it. And, and I think for me, I think for me is like you, you form an identity as a player, you know, and people get to understand and believe in that identity. The challenge with that is how do you grow within, within that identity? You know, um, how do you become a better version of yourself within that identity? And I think that's, um, that's always for me, the, I think that's as a coach, I'm, I'm wanting to explore that with players more. I want them to, I know what, I know what you're about. Um, but I want to see more. So let's take the example of your eldest son, who sounds like he's a bit more adventurous. He's perhaps playing some of those really good balls outside off stump. Um, and you must have played with lots of players in your time. So I guess some players that are sticking to the plan and you're trying to grow them, but also some players that are I'm creating an imaginary continuum with my hands, some players that are actually, you know, making some poor decisions around some stuff. What's... Yeah. What's been your kind of, yeah, what would be your advice or your, what have you learned about coaching uh, players around that type of stuff? 
Oh, it's uh, quite simple. Whether you're working with a 16-year-old uh, like my son um, or you're working with a professional player, what's your plan? You know, what are you seeing here? And I think, I think we often underestimate the value of game sense or the value of, of kind of intellect. Um, I read a fantastic book last year called The Team of Teams by General Stanley McChrystal. And um, he spoke about how the SEAL teams learn how to make um, life and death decisions as they are gathering intelligence on the run um, or on the move. Um, and they can make very accurate, life-threatening decisions based on gathering intelligence very quickly. And I just absolutely, it is so relevant in sport. Sport is that. Sport is that. Sport is not a sterile environment. It's complete complex. Every environment you're in in sports complex and it's changing all the time. So you have to become, you need to understand what decisions that you need to make. So I think the more streetwise, intellectually capable um, players become the best players. So when I look at my 16-year-old, watch him play cricket today and he, and he gets out doing something. I'm The only question I'm asking is, what's your plan? You know, what is your plan in that situation? What could you have done differently? You've got to take the learning, you know. Uh, I don't mind the mistakes, but there has to be learning around it because you've got to, you know, otherwise you're not going to make it. You've got to get better the next time. You've got to have a better plan than what you have. It. You've got to be more intellectual. You've got to be more smarter around your game. Um, I remember when I was playing, you know, guys often used to say to me, um, out of all the players that we've got in our team, Gary kind of knows his role the best. And I just saying to people, it's not actually that I know my role my best. I probably just stick to it better than anyone. But it's easier for me to stick to my role than you. Why? Because I'm less talented than you. So there's nothing else I can do. <laughs> so I could stick to my role, you know. It was easy. Yeah, I think that's... Um... Like the tactical side of the game, I guess, is well, it's, it's probably the reason the RGs would have had some pretty strong emotion and intent, but tactically they gave some pictures to the All Blacks that they didn't recognise and adapt to within 80 minutes. So that's the, that's the reality. And the same in cricket, like the best batsman, you know, close your eyes. I'd imagine they know where the fielders are and when the next ball comes, you know, I've probably got one of two choices in my shots and you know, which one am I likely to play? I think they're, they're probably thinking a bit more than, than some other people. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, it's just, you, and, you, and you do it. You see professional players that um, they, they make decisions on the field that, that often make no sense and they just become emotionally hijacked, you know. Um, uh, pe uh, you know, people have often asked me, what is your, your kind of view on, on when you watch some players, they look to see mentally stronger or they make better decisions under pressure than a lot of other guys and I always think it I think confidence is an overrated word because um, I've had incredible success being very with very little confidence and I think I think game sense or game intellect is a very underrated word because I think you can be very smart with no confidence and perform um, but I've seen more guys go with this false confidence and make very poor decisions and not to, and not perform well, what do you mean you didn't have that much confidence i had innings as where i went into bat and i got 100 and i was nowhere mentally nowhere but i had a good plan i was organized 
I was nowhere mentally. Nervous. Didn't think I was good enough to be on the field. Uh, playing against some of the best cricketers in, in the world against them. Um, walk out to bat very vulnerable. Feel very weak. Um, but um, I know what I need to do. Yeah, I know what my plan is. And I'm just going to hang in here, survive. And then it turns. Who, uh, who helped you? Who helped you as a player? And then who's helped you as a coach? Who've been the people that have helped you make sense of that stuff? Uh, I've worked it out. I think I worked it out for myself a lot of the time. But I do think that uh, the coaches that really help you in that space is they give you, they give you the freedom to be vulnerable. So they look at you as a, they look at you as a, a human being, not a performance tool. So, you know, they back you as a human being, not a performance tool. So they, they will be accepting of you feeling vulnerable, but know that you can still perform. And the coaches that are able to do that are absolute gold because they're not looking for the atypical individual who is mentally abrasive and ready for um, any performance because that's fake news. It's the greatest fake news of all. Players can fake it much better than any, uh, much better than any other practitioner in any other industry. Professional players can fake properly. What, um, what interactions can you remember with your coaches? Is there like one or two that stand out where you go, that was like, that was a big moment? Um, yeah, I mean, listen, I, I think a coach that was um, very dear to me, especially when I was growing up as a player, was a guy by the name of Duncan Fletcher, who was the England coach for seven years. And um, I think he understood me as a human being more than most coaches that I worked with. And by, by understanding me, he accepted my vulnerabilities, but still backed me to be a top performer. And there's, you know, there's a lot of gold in that, you know, there's um, like, like, yo, I, I understand, I get you, I understand your insecurities. I know where your weak points are, but I also know what your strengths are. And I also know what you can bring to me. Hansi Cronier was my captain of uh, when I was with the South African team as a player. And for, as a leader, he had a bit of that in him as well. He kind of, he knew what I wasn't good at, but he wanted what I was good at. And I think sometimes what we do as coaches is we try, we try and search for the perfect athlete. We look for the guy that is like what we perceive to be perfect at everything. And I don't think that exists. I think we need to, you know, there are not many Michael Jordans running around basketball courts. So. <laughs> <laughs> and you've got to put a team together, you know. And um, So if you can accept where everyone is and just focus on what they do really well for you, you can really put a good team together. Yeah, and no, I like that. I mean, one of the things I would think a lot about is trying to meet people where they are. I love the fact, yeah. well, I mean, and I was a significantly worse player than you were, but there is no point making people as good as me, quite frankly, because England wouldn't win many uh, many matches of rugby. And uh, I love <laughs> the fact that even though you did all right for yourself, I mean, the reality is the game moves on and players become more skillful and, the players yeah. of the past who were excellent at that time, well, you know, there will be very few that would still, you know, kill it in today's game. Uh, I'm sure they would have adapted over time, but I think that's an yeah. important one. And often I see with kind of ex-players, well, this is how I did it type thing. And I'm thinking, yeah. Hey, will you tell everyone what you're up to at Core 37? Hi, Fletch. We're a teamwear brand based in the Northeast, and we're the sister company of Oddballs. 
We've got the largest sports sublimation factory in the UK and we've produced for the biggest brands in Europe over the past seven years. But with Core 37, our in-house brand, you can now access those prices direct to the customer. Why would people use Core 37? Uh, if I was to pick three flesh, it would be our lead time of three to four weeks, our price, which is lower than anybody else in the industry, and the fact that we're made here in the UK. What's the stuff you're most proud of with Core 37? Uh, there's loads of stuff, but the, the key one for me would be working for a company that, that genuinely believes in its own mission statement, which is to produce performance sportswear at an affordable price. And then underpinning that is the people. Everybody who works here is involved in grassroots sport in some way. And so we genuinely care about what we're doing here. Fletch, why do you want to partner with Core 37? Uh, apart from the fact you're Jordy, uh, great people, uh, lots of people involved in sport, really affordable and top quality. Thanks for joining us, Wilkie. Anyone who wants to find out more can go and have a play on their website at core-37.com or they can reach out directly to Tom at core-37.com. I'm, I'm curious, like your first, can you remember your first session or your first meeting with India what what was that like like your day one as a coach it was a disaster because <laughs> <laughs> I tried to I tried to present something to the team that um, that I thought was fancy and that I thought would make a difference to them um, and they uh, and and I realized very quickly that it was the last thing I should have done because I didn't really know them as people you know so I thought how arrogant of me as a South African to arrive in an Indian dressing room and tell them how they should play cricket. <laughs> what would you do? So I, spent the next, I spent the next nine months just closing my mouth and uh, listening a lot and asking questions and keeping uh, as quiet as possible and just, just engaging in who they are as people, getting to understand their way and what they want to do and how they want to play cricket. And then, and then uh, realizing that there are many different ways to skin the cat. There are many different ways to achieve success. You know, there's not only just the way that I perceived was the right way. And in a team context as well. And I think once you get, once you win that trust, um, then you can start to influence. And because everyone knows that they, you know, if a team is where they are and they need to, they need to improve, they know they need to improve, but they don't want to be told that. Um, they don't want to be told, no, you're doing things wrong. You need to do things this way. What the, what they do want is they, they want to win. They want to trust someone. And without them knowing, you're actually influencing them in the way that they should be going to improve. I'm with you on all of this. I like your idea. So of I'll, give you, I'll give you one example. <clears throat> um, when I, my first training session that I had with the Indian team, the, the, the SNC called for a warm-up session at nine o'clock on the field where we were training. And we had a squad of 14 and eight guys came out onto the field at nine o'clock. So I said to the SNC, I said, where are the rest of the players? <laughs> and, he, and he said, um, no, the other guys don't, they, they warm up on their own. So I said, well, what are you talking about? So they said, no, they... they they're the senior players. They, they warm up on their own. We, we come together half an hour later and then we start the session. But they allow to warm up on their own. <laughs> so I said, well, that's, today's the last day that they're warming up on their own. That's it. That's never going to happen again. 
And uh, it was amazing. It was just something that had been accepted in the context of a team that that's how they did it in India. Um, so I, I didn't need the trust of the players to change that. I just changed it straight away. I just said, that's, that's, that's not going to happen yet. <laughs> but it was a good example, a good illustration of uh, what, had been, what had been acceptable. You know. What um, you, you mentioned earlier, like top-end coach, when you, when you say that, what's the, what are the skills that you're thinking about for coaches that are, yeah, in, you know, top-end coaches? Um, yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And, and you know, for me, it's, I, think, I think it's very detailed. I think there's a lot to it. I don't think coaching is... Um, you know, a set of principles that you can put down and everyone can apply. I think there's a lot, there's a lot that goes on in coaching that you need to get right. Environments are very complex and, and very detailed. I've worked in a lot of different environments around the world now. And everyone requires, every environment requires something different. But if, if you had to ask me top of line, um, define coaching, I would use one word, quality facilitation. That, that for me is the essence of coaching, quality facilitation, your ability to, to take a group of people and to take the greatest IP out of the group, manipulate the IP for the benefit of everyone and create incredibly thriving environments where people can be the best, best version of themselves. And that is not a tell environment. It's not a tell environment. It's a facilitative environment. You've got to ask the right questions. You've got to get the right people to contribute at the right times. You've got to understand where the intellect in the group sits and make sure that you facilitate the meetings to take uh, the meetings to take the best learnings. Um, I am I am dead against tell environments. Period. <laughs> I um, yeah. I mean, I would agree with all of that. Like, it's you're noticing skills. It's being intentional around your interactions with people and. You know, sometimes that might be not speaking to people. Sometimes it is. It's is it individually? Is it collectively? Is it the whole team? It's um, um, and and have you had re rebellions against this? So sometimes people, you know, I've coached in just come back from Bermuda, and the first two days was my, everyone was late. So that, you know, I, my view would be eventually they'll stop being late because they'll realise it's the wrong thing to do. They did that yeah. pretty quickly, but then. Lots of people are asking for certainty, you know, in a quite dynamic sport, rugby. And they, you know, you need to tell us this, we need to know this, we need to know this. I mean, yeah, what have you ever had people go, come on, come on, Gary, you're wrong here. This isn't, uh, this isn't how we do things around here. Yeah, I think so. But then I don't want to be there, first of all. <laughs> That's not an environment I want to be in. But I, I think... I think people, um, where, where, do you, where do you build safety in a, in a team environment, you know? Um, how do you create safety? And I think there are many different ways of doing that. And for me, um, um, building safety in the environment, I think, comes from um, within. Um, I think players create the safety. And... Um, I don't know how safe an environment is when it has been thrust upon you, where a playbook is given to you and said, 
this is the environment you're going to op uh, operate in and you've got no opinion on it. You've got no view. I don't know how safe those environments are. I think, you know, when, you know, it's like, it's like, it's like uh, parenting a, a, you know, a 14 year old that's going through adolescence and um, you build boundaries for them or you help them build those boundaries. And by building those boundaries, um, they have safety to explore and express. In many ways, I think a team is uh, a team of adults is slightly different. You know, I think, uh, I think we can co-create those boundaries. I don't think, uh, you know, I don't have to be the parent to tell you this is how you're going to operate. Let's co-create it. And I think you build, you build greater accountability in that. You know, it was interesting. Um, test match playing day, you know, is always a tough day um, because there's, there's a lot that needs to happen before the first ball is bowled at 10 o'clock in the morning. And, you know, players generally get up, have to get up a little bit earlier. They've got to go down to breakfast. They've got to then hop on the bus. They've got to get to the ground. There's quite a lot of preparation before the match starts. I'll never forget when I was with the Indian team. You've got, you got three different types of individuals, okay? Bus is leaving at 9 o'clock. You get some individuals that arrive at quarter to 9 because they don't want to be late. You get other individuals who kind of push the bar a little bit, but they don't want to be late. And they get there at about 7 minutes to 9 five to nine and they don't really vary from that too much and then you get the third individual who arrives on the bus 30 seconds before it leaves he's not late uh he's not late but he's everyone's getting frustrated because they want to go so the guys on the, who got on the bus at quarter to nine have been there 15 minutes get really irritated with that individual but then the guy who's arriving 30 seconds before gets very irritated with the individual who's sitting on the bus for 15 minutes so what's right? What's right? <laughs> Nothing's right. No one's breaking the rules, you know, but it's just how people process um, the different set of rules that has been thrust upon, upon them. So we, we created an environment in the Indian team. We said there are no rules here. All you need to do is be mindful of your teammate. So I always used to say to Vivius Laxman, who arrived 30 seconds before the bus left, I used to say to him, you're not wrong. But I, all I want you to do is just think about the guy who's been here for 15 minutes already. And he said, no, I get your point. But it didn't change. He still arrived 30 seconds. <laughs> when, uh, when would you arrive for the bus? I was always 15 minutes before because I hated being late. Yeah. The you know, I, 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 was, I was always first on the bus. So it was never an issue to me. But, uh, you know, it used to frustrate me, the guys that pushed it to the limit. Because I, I knew, I was the one when they told, oh, how long do we have to take to get to the ground? And I was like on a tight timeline to get the team ready for match day. Um, but I needed to appreciate the guy that was also, you know, trying to run the gauntlet and do it with 30 seconds to spare. Yeah, I don't think you'd, my guess would be you wouldn't have that many opening batsmen that were 30 seconds beforehand. Most <laughs> the opening batsmen would be on the bus, on the, on the bus early. Got me... Um, I mean, I'm, I'm with you as well on the no rules. Once again, we have the same thing in Bermuda, right? We need rules, we need fines, we need. I'm going, no, no, no. We let's just celebrate when people do stuff well, and let's yeah. be good to each other and be considerate of of one another. Actually, one of the questions I was <clears throat> going to ask you really was about how have you used the players and co-creating stuff. People will often say to me, "Oh yeah, yeah, you can do that with kids. That's fine with the kids. You can." You know, you can have no rules and you can co-create stuff. And But when you get to the serious stuff, to the performance environment, 
you need all of this, you know, all of this process stuff around timings around. Yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, firstly, I mean, for, for me, I love co-creation because I don't know everything, first of all, and I don't know what necessary, what's right and wrong. My success in my leadership is not that I know everything, it's that I'm facilitating a good process, you know, because there's a lot of IP in the room. There's a lot of intellect. And I've had good experiences that way, you know. Um, I went to work with the Hobart Hurricanes down in the Big Bash a couple of years ago, um, working with a bunch of Australians. Um, all seen, a lot of them senior players with great intellect and great thinking around the game. Um, so it was a really rich experience because I, I knew that there was good IP in the room. I didn't know a lot of the players that we were playing against in the Big Bash. So I had to... I had to canvas their opinion and canvas their views. Um, so co-creation for me is, there are two good things that come out of that. One is the player continues to learn. Okay, so if he's co-creating a culture, he's, he's fully involved in the learning cycle, which is play, reflect, plan, practice, play. That's the learning cycle. So he's fully engaged in the entire cycle. Um, the other thing that co-creation does, it creates accountability because if you're part of creating a, an environment, um, you're accountable to the behaviors that sit in that space. Um, and when players have to be responsible for their behaviors, I think they behave or they operate, they operate with responsibility rather than when they're told and said, this is the way you have to behave. Often they will shirk accountability or they will pass on blame or they'll say oh that environment doesn't work for this group of people but i love building account uh, accountability mechanisms in team environments i agree so the thing that fascinated me about all the lads in bermuda was they've all come from environments created that weren't co-created where being on time was really important and the minute they left those environments being on time it didn't become a, it just became it just wasn't something they did as a normal thing because it was something they owned and they were part of. So it was absolutely, yeah, just fascinating for me to see how quickly yeah. you, you do. And then I guess I was also curious about, so to what extent are you co-creating sessions? So when you're designing your sessions, player involvement, and, and then also like in reflecting on your sessions and your coaching, are players involved in that process as well? Yeah. Because I think they need to take accountability in that as well. I mean, I'm watching a, um, I don't know if you've been watching any of these sports documentaries that they've been putting out on Prime, we, on Prime Video and stuff, but I'm watching the Dallas Cowboys at the moment. Um, and we're in the series at the moment where they've lost uh, three out of their five games and it's a big ticket, it's a big ticket uh, football team. Um, and they're, they're under the pump eh? and it is, it's fascinating to watch um, how um, leadership then cre uh, shifts a little bit when under the pump. Yeah. They, they kind of assume more responsibility, don't they? They take on more. And um, I, just, I just feel that um, if, if, I've got a, if I've got a training day, I'm really interested to know what the players feel in how they can get the best out of this day. Um, I still need to have the skill to be able to deliver on what they're thinking and what they're feeling. So if they come up to me and, you know, if I asked uh, Vera Kohli and A.B. De Villiers at, at RCB and a couple of other players and I say to them, 
what's a, what's what's a top end day for us where we get the most out of the day and we feel we we're ready for game time and they might go you know what uh, coach we uh, we feel today's a bit of a back off day because we've had three really hard sessions so we feel a bit of a back off day but we still need to get some quality work in then I'll set the session up accordingly for that there's also a time where I think they're faking it there'll be a time where yeah. where they where they're trying to take an easy road and I say guys I think today's a today we need to put in some yards um and and then and I'll go against you know what they're saying you know I'll say well, well I'll get them to agree with me you know today we need some yards so I think it's a in the co-creation it doesn't mean you can't be provocative and you can't be quite direct as well but you are giving them the option to uh, participate in in what you're creating nice um I want to maybe- uh, turn a little bit towards coach development stuff. I'm curious, actually. So, um, from you as a as a coach uh, in your development, uh, what are the have you had a couple of like, ouch moments where you've gone, oh, so maybe the first day with the uh, with with India was was one of them. But have you had any moments where either through feedback from a player or a coach developer or you know a, a, someone you trust or or actually just noticing something, you've gone. Right, that's that's going to have some impact on me. That <laughs> I've had many of those, <laughs> many, many, many. I think I've often uh, I've often doubted myself and questioned my ability. I mean, my first coaching job, team coaching job that I ever did, we won the World Cup. <laughs> so <laughs> I should have retired right then and just stopped and said, "That's it, I'm not doing this again." But uh, you know, you walk a journey. And then I went to coach the Proteus after that, uh, the South African cricket team. And we, you know, we became the number one test team in the world, you know, in England. And like, geez, my first five years of coaching, this is like, this is a breeze. You know, I'm going to be the only, I'm going to be the only coach in the world never to get fired. But then, you know, then I retired from that and I went into uh, IPL and I've, you know, I've had, I've had a lot of failure in IPL. Um, and then I had a year with the Hobart Hurricanes. We did really well there. So it's it's kind of, it's I think, as I said right at the beginning, I, I think I've learned more about coaching from failure, you know. So my coach education has come largely from experience. Um, I've had incredible pieces of feedback where I think I've coached, I think I coached a, an IPL team um, really poorly um, because they, they needed something different from me. Um so, so my journey has been a, just a continued learning process. The one thing that I'm grappling with at the moment in my coaching is, um, can I be a different version of myself based on the, what the environment requires of me? Or am I just a one-size-fits-all approach? That's what I was going to ask you. So when you, when you said about oh, they needed something different from me, what, what yeah. thing they needed and, and what was preventing you from being able to provide that? Um, I think the one thing, environments that require me to be a little bit more direct, a bit more challenging, a bit more um, requiring a bit more of a stronger leadership approach is probably not a natural place for me to go. Same as me. Um, I'm interested in your answer now. um, So my learning around that is that can I be that person? And my answer to it is I think I can be. I think you... I think I can be in 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 a more sp- in certain ways. You know, there are ways you can be a little bit more direct. But but I always 
feel when I'm doing that, that I, I can't be emotional around that. I've got to be um, accurate in my, my directness, if that makes sense. So, so like a player came up to me, give me an example. A player came up to me who played for India um, when I was coaching in IPL. And I wanted some feedback from some of the players on my coaching. So um, the, one of the pieces of feedback that he gave me, he said he didn't think that um, um, for him, I didn't get the best out of him because I didn't confront him really aggressively when he needed confronting. So I didn't give him a hard yard and say to him, you know, that what you did was unacceptable. Um, and he said that um, for me to get the best out of him, I needed to do that more. And I thought it was a great piece of advice from him. So what I've tried to do now is really get to understand each individual in such a way as what is their requirements of me. Never forget a coaching mate of mine once said to me, he said, you know, with every player in your team, you need to be a chameleon. You need to understand what is need, what, what is what they need from you. And every guy would love you to be their friend, but that's not what is required. You're a leader. <laughs> You're not just matey-matey here. Yeah? One guy might require you to be quite direct with them, and you need to be that person. So I'm trying to understand the player better. Yeah, that would be the one that, um, the, the example you just spoke said there would be the one. I feel I would be, I would find it quite tough to be authentic and give someone a hard time often what they think a hard time is as well so quite shouty quite aggressive you know i have had players say you know best coaches this is what they do to me and i'm thinking i would struggle with that to do that it would feel a bit weird for me i wouldn't you know feel natural doing that but maybe that's a maybe that's something i need to stretch towards at some point so do i rusty so do i <laughs> And so, and in terms of the stuff you're doing now, clearly having a huge impact on still on players, but also on coaches. What what's the stuff that you feel like is having impact uh, in in the coach development space? I'm uh, I'm going to walk to see my son's bowling. By the way, no, you should definitely get to see him bowl. <laughs> um, um, what I'm fascinated by in coaching at the moment is um um trying to create uh, trying to understand as many case studies as possible of people coaching and what makes so what makes the type of coaching work in certain environments and not in other environments i'm fascinated that um you used the example earlier that, that an alex ferguson can have so much success over such a long period of time and then the next coach who comes in and really battles i'm fascinated by that I'm fascinated that uh, under Steve Hansen, the All Blacks had such success, and now you know potentially they could be looking at another journey. You know, I'm mm -hmm. I'm fascinated at what sits in coaching that 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 kind of makes that happen, and how that happens. I'm I'm absolutely fascinated by it. So that's that's the kind of journey that uh, that I'm wanting to go on now is just to learn more about that. Um, I'm part of quite a big uh, cricket coaching community now of top of some of the top coaches in the world. And I'm just absolutely, you know, Justin Langer's way is very, very different to Peter Moore's. Yeah. But they're both excellent coaches. They're both excellent coaches and they've both got a view and a way of doing things. Um, and I'm kind of, I'm wanting to pick off all of them, you know. I'm wanting to be like, like I want to be Justin Langer in certain environments and then I want to be, Peter Moore's in other in other moments, you know. So 
I think that's fascinating. But you you made the point, which you absolutely spot on. I think I think that um, that authenticity in terms of who we are as people has to ring true in everything that you do. There's got to be a you can't be fake. So so I'll tell you now, I will never be able to coach like Justin Langer. But there might be something that I could take out of his coaching ways that can be of real value to me. Yeah, it's, it's got me thinking even more now. I would, because I've been fortunate enough to coach in lots of environments, you become quite adaptable as a coach. But also, maybe there's just some places that aren't the right place for you. So Wales yeah. is a great example at the moment. So, you know, they change. One Gatlin leaves. He's been unbelievably successful. He goes somewhere and he loses practically every single game. But and then they bring him P back and he can't win with a Welsh team that are used to winning. And yeah, just fascinating. He then got, I know we chatted about it briefly beforehand, but it then got me really thinking about how do we recruit coaches? Like, what do we need to know about them? Could we like, could we have a, a taster day with them in advance with the, where the players, you know? I, yeah, it just fascinates me this. I reckon, I reckon, I reckon, Rusty, that, that that recruitment process of a coach is an art, and um, um, there's I don't think enough um, auditing has done of that. You know, you needed to audit the environment. What is it? What does this environment require now? What type of coach does it require? And I think often what we default to is technically astute coaches, and especially in the world of science and technology now, we. We get, we get blown away by a fancy PowerPoint, you know, where someone interviews really well because he thinks this is what he can offer without actually the art of the coaching, understanding the individual, who is he and what are his strengths as a human being that is going to allow him to move people. I mean, my recruitment to the Indian team was based on a hunch that I, as a personality, would have suited the, the, what, the, what the Indian team required as a personality. And, they, and you know what? It was a hunch, but they nailed it. Because the coach pre prior to that was Greg Chaffel, and he was, you know, quite. Um, he was an Australian who who tried to introduce to the Indians a way of playing, and um, the bottom line is the players hated it. So his personality didn't suit the requirements of that team. It's crucial to be able to to get that matching right. Yeah, I don't. Uh, it's definitely got me thinking. And a shout out to Dave Slemon who. There's a lot of work across sports in this around just doing this in a just in a more effective way, really. Even I was just thinking then. So the guy I coached with in Bermuda, Rossi, he um, he got a job at Nottingham because he he applied for the job. They weren't going to interview him, and then they listened to his podcast with me, and so they interviewed him. I mean, that's it's ridiculous, isn't it? However, it's it's worked out really well. Um, yeah, I guess just where do we get this information from? And yeah, I think the world of rugby is an interesting space at the moment where my sense is that agents dominate a lot of these conversations and actually they're not that informed around coaching, quite frankly. That we can recruit. There's absolutely no expertise in recruiting that coach. I mean, there's got to be a... You know, there's got to, the only thing, I mean, when I've done a bit of um, recruiting of coaches in various environments, I don't even, I'm not even interested in the interview. All I want is referencing, you know. Yeah. I just want to go to credible, credible references and not the references that sit on his CV, just credible references. And I want to go find out about this guy. You know, I was part of 
recruiting Otis Gibson to the Proteas team as the head coach. Um, and all I did is I phoned up five people that had worked with him, and it was enough to tell me, you know, that this guy's got some got something for this team. I knew what the team required, and he was a gun coach for the Proteas. Did a great job. Um, and yeah, that's that's how I would recruit coaches in. Coaching is attributed, so you definitely need to ask the people that have been coached. Um, I got last question because I, I definitely want to let you go and enjoy your son's bowling. Um, you clearly visit a lot of environments. Um, which ones, you know, if you would go rusty, there's a couple of places I would recommend you go and hang out. Here they are. And my second question around that is when you go into a place for the first time, what is it you're interested in? What are you noticing? Um, Two great questions. First one would be, um, you know, you're a rugby person, but I'm 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 in the cricket space. But if you could if you could hook yourself up in one of those IPL teams, that is a that is an incredibly dynamic coaching environment. And then I think to have the opportunity to to spend some time um, with an international cricket team, you know, what whatever that team is. It's just incredible. It's great to just watch and just to see the dynamics that coaches are faced with in those environments, even if it's a county team, you know. So, so those for me are, are big. I mean, um, what am I looking for um, when I arrive? Um, I've been fortunate to transcend sports and I really enjoy that. I've gone into quite a few rugby environments. And if someone said to me, if I'm an outsider, what am I looking for when, when, when I walk into the environment? I'm trying to see um, a energy that sits in the space, which is a mixture of really light, but um, purposeful, a light, but purposeful energy. So like I, I get, I get where these guys are going. There's a lot of direction in their energy here. But cheap is having a lot of fun along the way. Something in between there. So it's a very competitive environment. It's competitive, but it's light. That makes sense. No, serious fun. You're looking for serious fun. <laughs> serious fun. There you go. Serious right. fun. Absolutely. Gary, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for taking time out and watching your son play. Um, I'm very keen for us to catch up again at some stage and uh, would love to coaching. Um, hope his bowling goes better than his batting, and we'll uh, <laughs> and we'll catch up soon. Thanks, Rusty. Thanks for your time.